Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I'm Stephen English and with me today is Neil Morrison. And Neil, we'll be talking about the Dutch TT and uh, really it was probably one of the biggest weekends of surprising results that we've seen in a long time. And uh, even discounting England's result against Iceland, I think it's fair to say Jack Miller's win on Sunday was probably the biggest shock that we've seen in a very long time in MotoGP. Yeah, it was definitely. I think uh, looking back through the history books, you maybe have to go back to 2006 when Tony Elias had that astonishing victory in Estoril um, as the last time that we had a you know such a surprise um, but uh, but considering Jack's form throughout the weekend um, how he qualified uh, he didn't qualify so well and then in the first race um, which was which was stopped because of torrential rain you know in that first running he was running well you know inside the top 10 um, in ninth place but even then, you really couldn't have predicted that uh, he would go on uh, to, to win it so convincingly in the second part. Yeah, and I think that when you look at uh, the result, especially for Jack, his first ever top 10 was just the previous w- race in Catalonia as well. And it looks like, well, this has been a very difficult season for him, whether you take into account the, the ankle injuries early in the year, the, the leg injuries, and then just trying to adapt again to this new Honda, which everyone seems to be struggling on. But when you look at Jack's performances, whether it's Mugello, Catalonia or in Aston, it does look like there is that progression and that uh, development for him. And he really does look like he's now making himself a lot more comfortable on the bike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you really kind of, you just wish that um, that he hadn't sustained those leg injuries at the start of the year because whenever we saw him turn up at the Phillip Island test in February, he was almost unrecognisable from the guy that was there the year before. You know, he was very, very, very slim. Um, you know, his face almost looked quite gaunt. You could see he had, he had lost so much weight over the over the, the the winter break, and you know that injury really set him back because it you know he essentially missed the first um, he said he missed the first test in Sepang, then the second one in Phillip Island. He was you know still getting finding his feet and recovering, and you know as we all know, yeah, and you just mentioned it there, the Honda this year, um, especially the satellite Honda is just they're a real piece of work to try and ride. And Jack's had a tough time of uh, of getting his way through it. He had to sit out the the race in Austin because of um you know he had a big crash in, in qualifying and yeah you know we really it's taken until around Mugello in you know free practice and qualifying there he had an unfortunate fall um at the start of that race but it's really taken until then um for him to get up to speed and show basically what we all know he's capable of yeah because that's the thing like everyone everyone knows how talented Jack is and when you look at him on a bike he can do things that uh, not a lot of riders are capable of doing but it is just to get that untapped and get it to to the fore more often. I think when you look at Jack, especially, as you said, Neil, like last year to this year, you can see a big difference. And uh, whether it's maturity, whether it's just understanding that uh, to be a MotoGP rider, you need to have that uh, level of commitment, that level of fitness, that level of basically your life revolving around motorbike racing again. And uh, I think for Jack, it took definitely a bit of time just to understand that's what he needed to do. And when you look at last year, he turned up to the first test. He was clearly overweight, clearly unfit. And then by the time we got to Indianapolis last year, he started to look more like a, a MotoGP rider. He had the fitness then for the second half of that year. And that's really what probably meant, meant that he was able to recover from his injuries over the winter and actually still testing Phillip Island racing in Qatar even though he was he was still suffering pretty badly at that, that stage yeah absolutely and I remember speaking to to Lucio Cecchinello last year um, at Silverstone and we were talking about Jack and you know um, he had just been assigned Alberto Puig at that stage to help him become I guess a bit more MotoGP professional um, in terms of training and preparation away from the circuit um, and Lucio was saying like you know Jack you know Jack trains it's not an issue it's just that the top guys you know you're even like the top satellite guys you're 
Crutchlows, your Bradley Smiths, every single day. All they think about is how they can be in the best possible shape to get to the track. They think, you know, they breathe, they eat. Everything is directed towards, um, you know, arriving at, at, at the circuit in the best possible shape. And Jack just quite you know, hadn't quite found that level of commitment. Um, and, you know, it's understandable that, that the state, at that age he was, um, at that stage he was only 20 years old. He's 21 now. I don't know about you, Steve, when you were that age, um, but I thought you were putting absolutely everything into, uh, you know, what you wanted to be in, in the end. So I think, um, you know, it's taken Jack a little while to kind of come up to come up to speed to know what's expected of him um but now that he is putting you know the the kind of effort in away from the track um he's finally starting to get his rewards yeah and i i found it interesting actually uh earlier this year when jack joined us in the commentary box at Mizano and or at imola sorry and a lot of people commented on just how surprised they were at his maturity and how surprised they were at uh just how nice a guy Jack is. Like obviously everyone in the GP paddock knows that uh, you know Jack's one of the, the friendlier riders. He's one of the lads that uh, everyone does have a lot of time for. But I thought it was interesting just to see people from the outside of that paddock looking at him and, and their perception of what they expected and what they actually got from him. And uh, you know, I, I thought that uh, over the winter, anytime that uh, you know, I was down at the Phillip Island test, I was in Kota as well. And anytime you're talking to Jack, even in Kota, whenever he he was injured again there and he had to skip the race you could still see just that sense of maturity from him this year that we didn't really see last year or when he was in Moto3 yeah absolutely yeah and I mean he's um, he's you know I guess it's all part of uh, of growing up um, maturing to a certain extent um, he has moved up to to Andorra I think uh, quite recently um, you know and he's he's living up there he has the group of uh, you know some Australians that live live there as well uh, Brock Parks I think um, you know, and then a couple of lots of white guys like Chaz Davies, Leon Camier. Um, you know, having those guys around and available, I guess, to go out training. Maybe it's on a on a push bike, on a, a motocross bike, or whatever. You know, that's obviously that's obviously uh, you know that can help um, hone his focus away from the track. Um, he also said that he spent a week on the Isle of Man, stayed with Cal Crutchlow um, the week before Assen, and they spent about a week, you know, doing about five hundred kilometers on push bikes. So you can see he's just he's beginning to find that. Um, you know that, that what he kind of needs to do away from the track um and that's that's obviously paying off yeah and uh just looking at jack then as well obviously he's the the first guy we've seen move from moto 3 directly into moto gp and um just trying to adapt to the the gp bike as well you could see just the challenges of that and obviously whenever the move was announced everyone understood just how difficult the task was going to be but i think for uh for Jack to have picked up the win this early, obviously it's in exceptional circumstances in the weather and things like that. But do you think, are we now at a point where we might see other Moto3 riders linked to GP rides again? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, you know, if you look at Moto3 at the moment, I would say there's no absolute standout candidate that, that you would say, you know, has to be fast-tracked into, into MotoGP. Um, you know, arguably, if there was a kind of Marquez-level talent um, or even a Jack Miller-level talent in Moto3 at the moment, I know Brad Binder's having a great year, but it's taken Brad, you know, several years to kind of climb up the ladder and, and you know, become the rider that he is now. Um, I don't know if, if, if you, you speak to people in the paddock and there's, there's definitely mixed views about it. I think um, I think Moto Two, to a certain extent, is is still relevant and is still necessary for young riders coming up the ladder because you know you're still growing up at at that point. Um, you know, Jack Miller, you said in his first season of Moto GP, he showed up and you know he obviously wasn't physically prepared for you know what was what was needed for the task at hand. Um, you know, a year of Moto Two or or maybe even two years of Moto Two might have 
you know, being an e- you know the spotlight wouldn't have been as uh, as tough on him. Wouldn't have been shining so brightly, um, and he could have you know matured without less, without as much spotlight there. Got his training sorted out and got his fitness sorted out, and then climbed into MotoGP. So I'm not sure. I don't think. Um, yeah, okay. It showed that it can still work in the a rider not necessarily needs to or doesn't necessarily need to go through Moto2 to have success in MotoGP but I think it's going to be um, a rarity on the whole yeah like I think for me I don't, I don't think it's a, a viable move for any rider really I think even a rider as talented as Jack has struggled to adapt to the bikes I think any of these guys can jump onto pretty much any bike in the world and they'll be able to get you know quite close to where they need to be in terms of lap time pretty quickly but to be able to do it for 45 minutes, to be able to do it for 18 weekends a year, that's where the big challenge is. And I think that the advantages of going through Moto2 or the advantages of going through superbikes, you know, it, it outweighs just the potential that you could get from just jumping straight up. And I think this was this was a, a gamble that Honda made. And, and I think probably looking at it in terms of we saw Quattararo coming into Moto3 with all those expectations and maybe they were looking at it thinking in terms of, well, if we can prove that a rider can make the jump, then maybe this incredibly special rider that will come up and obviously at the time Quattararo was being talked like that, maybe we'd be able to have a couple of years in Moto3 and then jump him straight to MotoGP. And I think it was just a, a case of just way too ambitious from Honda. Jack's managed to have his win now but it's uh, it's easy just to to have that to gloss over a lot of the a lot of the negatives that have happened over the last eighteen months for Jack because it has been a difficult transition and sure enough he's been able to come in do a good job and be be a solid rider in MotoGP but uh, maybe if he had had a year in Moto Two he would have been able to come in and perform better from the outset so it's just good it's interesting to see how teams will now assess riders and I think when you look at uh, the likes of Alex Rins is being confirmed at Suzuki. Zarco is going to come up with Tectua and all likelihood. Sam Lowe is coming up with Aprilia. Yo, uh, Giannis Folger coming up with Tectua as well. It just uh, shows that the Moto3, Moto3 route isn't the one that the teams are favouring. It's still Moto2 just to give riders a year or two years on a Moto2 bike and then adapt their riding style and get used to the to what you need to do on the Premier Class bike. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, you touched on it there a little bit. Um, you know, Jack's first year in MotoGP was far from straightforward. There were the occasional flash, or there was the occasional flash of, uh, of you know, un- unbelievable potential. I guess you're looking at Silverstone last year where he looked like he could win the race. Um, but then it also looked like he was trying to win the race, you know, in the first like two or three laps and, you know, it had disastrous consequences in the end. You know, it was interesting. He also said that um, that Aston in the last two years really hasn't been kind to him. He essentially, you know, the crash that he had when he was leading the race here in 2014 and in Moto3, uh, he crashed when he was leading. Um, and essentially he said that that was, that was what lost him in the championship in the end. Um, and then last year, uh, you, could, you could argue that along with... Um, Along with Silverstone, it was his, the nadir in his MotoGP career to date in that I think he hit about, uh, he started, you know, from toward the back of the grid. And in the first lap, he oh, managed to just about make contact with every rider that was in his path. And he had uh, criticism from Eugene Laverty, from Nicky Hayden, uh, Bautista. And then I think he crashed with um, with Hector Barber at the last chicane. You know, and it was just it was just a case of trying to do far too much, you know, too early in the race rather than thinking about it for a whole, you know, as a whole. Um, and that's what really impressed me the most on Sunday was the fact that um, that he had the pace, but 
at no point did it look like he was trying to do anything stupid with it. He was looking at the big term or at the long term picture. You know, he's looking at the full 12 laps. And, you know, even if Marquez was applying a little bit of pressure towards the end, you know, Jack stayed very cool headed um, and managed to managed to bring it home. Yeah. And I think uh, like I found it interesting. I was doing a, a little bit of work for on track off road this week and just comparing what I had to write last year because I had Jack as, as, a, as a lead story in MCN just about the crashes and and uh, just that opening lap and then you compare it to what we saw at the weekend and just being mature enough to understand that uh, you know take the points when they're there and don't push beyond the conditions and sure enough he was able to in the restarted race move himself into a really solid position and then take advantage of the fact that Marquez probably had way more to lose and, and was, wasn't willing to push quite as hard and uh, you know Miller put himself into the right place at the right time and you know he's he's done something that a lot of people can't do and that's win a MotoGP race you know when you look at uh, the championship there's only a handful of riders that have won races when you look at it over the last decade there's only been four riders that have won more than one race so you know it just shows just how difficult it is to actually go out and win a race so regardless of anything that happens again you know Miller's the the 12th Australian to win a Grand Prix and uh, you know that's something that can't be taken off him. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, after the race, he was saying that the basically being can was the was the main reason. You know that that was what paid off for him. Um, was able to manage manage his kind of his nerves and his excitement and all those kind of crazy emotions that you're feeling when you're in a race. Never mind leading one. Um, so yeah, so he, he did really well. And you know what surprised me as well is that he said after the first race was stopped and he finished ninth in that race, he was saying, you know, why are you restarting it? I'm happy with this. You know, ninth place is good. And it actually would have bettered his best result in the class by one, um, which was achieved in Barcelona the last time out, you know, and that just shows that he was thinking, you know, he wasn't just thinking about the glory. He was actually taking a measured approach thinking, okay, right, let's try and just improve on what we did last time. And then when the opportunity presented itself, like it did in the second race, you know, a few guys went down, a few of the, the leaders from the first the first part, you, you know, Rossi, Davizioso, um, Crutchlow, Pedroza guys that, you know, were going to figure in that first race. Uh, you know, Jack found himself towards the front and, you know, he, he, did, he did a great job, a tremendous job to, to bring it home. Yeah, and I think uh, just what you're saying about, you know, ninth, he would have been happy with, I'd say Jorge Lorenzo would have been happy with ninth instead of tenth at the weekend. It was another time where in the wet at Assen, you see an awful lot of the old ghosts from Lorenzo starting to appear. And obviously that crash he had there three years ago that left him with a broken collarbone coming back 48 hours later, it, it definitely seems to have left an awful lot of scar tissue for him. Like you talked to him after Sunday's race, Neil, how was he? Um, I mean, he was, you know, he was kind of done. He was trying to put a brave face on things, um, but it was, it was just almost strange, you know, seeing a guy that um, he led around 180 laps more than anyone else last year. And, you know, here he was talking about 10th place being a positive um, for the championship as a whole. It didn't quite make sense. Um, but it was just, uh, you know, everything that possibly could could have gone wrong for Lorenzo did go wrong in the end. You know, we know that Aston is, is to a certain extent his bogey circuit. He has had issues with that fourth sector uh, in the track, you know, the the kind of the, the right-left flick before Ramshuk and then the chicane. He's just never really been able to, to get his style to suit that. Um, I was out uh, watching trackside on, uh, during FP3. Um, and I was with John, John Laverty for a little while and he was saying that you could just see with Lorenzo's style through that kind of right-left flick, um, the G-forces are such that you almost need to manhandle the bike, you know, and kind of push the bike and force it to do what it, you know, what it needs to do. Lorenzo's style is so easygoing and smooth that you just can't really, can't really muscle a bike around like it needs to be done. Um, so he was struggling there in the dry 
Um, but then when the wet came, you know, the Michelin front tire that was there was, I think, you know, the construction of it was far too hard. Um, a lot of riders struggled to get any sort of feeling in it. And we all know that Lorenzo is so dependent on that front feel that when it isn't there, uh, he just, he can't cope. And we saw it to a certain extent in Barcelona in the dry, you know, when his front tire started to, you know, he started to have some issues with it. And then we saw it again in Essen and it really just it affected him badly. And he said that along with 2014, where he, I think he finished 13th um, in bad conditions in Essen, he said, you know, that Sunday, the first part of it anyway, was, uh, you know, was up there with his worst races ever. Um, and I think at the end of that race, you looked at uh, the fastest man on track, that was Danny Pedrosa. And you looked at Lorenzo's lap times and he was some 10 seconds slower a lap. <laughs> you know, we're talking about a reigning world champion here and that's just something you thought you would never say. Yeah, and, and Aston has always been one of those bogey tracks for him, as you said. And, and I did find it interesting when you, obviously, um, you, you're you on Twitter and you're looking to see what everyone is saying about what they see. And I think Matt Oxley was talking a lot about Lorenzo through some of the fast sections at the end of the lap. And just like what you said with John Laverty, just maybe where that smoothness that worked so well for... 98% of the season just costs him in a couple of corners at Aston and it really seems to hold him back but I think uh, you know right now Lorenzo falls 24 points behind Marquez in the championship and you know Mark hasn't really there haven't been the standout performances we're used to seeing from Marquez this year they've all just been consistent they've been about getting the most points possible that he can from any race he hasn't pushed over the limit he hasn't you know exceeded anything through the season so far Whereas you look at uh, Lorenzo, you look at Mark, you look at Rossi, and you can see those guys having their non-scores. Those guys really struggling, and that's why you know there's a 24 points gap to Lorenzo in the championship, and I think it's 42 points for Rossi. And you know it just shows just the challenge of this year with these Michelin tires, where you just need to always pick up your points and make sure that you're scoring as many as you can, rather than what it was in the past, where it really did come down to who was winning races because everyone knew what to expect from the Bridgestones. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, Sunday might have been Marquez's most mature ride yet. We saw in, in Areth, we saw in Barcelona, that there came a point where you recognised that the win was impossible and that it would be stupid and futile to try and do anything to you know, to, to win the race. And I think after the race in uh, in Aston, he said that he could have, you know, he feels that he could have run Miller's Miller's pace, but he would have had to have gone beyond the comfort zone or gone out of the comfort zone. And, you know, whenever, especially if you're in treacherous conditions, where the grip is varying from lap to lap, you know, um, we, you know, we saw with Rossi what happens sometimes when you go when you go out of that comfort zone. So I think I think Mark did a, a you know a sensational job in the way he was celebrating that race. Um, you know, when he crossed the line, you know, along uh, around the slowdown lap, he was seen consistently pointing to his head, you know, saying that basically it, uh, you know, it had been a, th- a you know the race of someone that was using their brain, that someone that was thinking. And he said oh, through Sunday morning, his team were just saying to him over and over again, Mark, you have to finish the race today. You have to finish the race. And we even saw in the first part that at first he didn't have the speed to run with Rossi with Davizioso with Petrucci or with Reading and and he was you know he was still managing it he was still doing okay he was saying that this was this was a day where I can lose points not when I I can win them so it was going to be a a damage limitation job and then when he saw Rossi sliding on in the second part um, it was like all his Christmases were coming at once so yeah Mark's in a very very strong position now he's 24 points ahead he's heading to the Saxon ring where I think he's undefeated since 2009 so you would have to say he goes to Germany as the favourite to win that race and you know going into the summer break you know we're looking at, at Mark as having at least a race 
advantage in the championship, which is, you know, which is some going considering where he was at the start of the year. Yeah. And is, is there anything more terrifying than the thought of Mark Marquez actually being you know, able to ride within himself, able to ride in, able to ride smart, able to ride without thinking in terms of just the pressure of winning races, just thinking in terms of picking up as many points as possible and still having that speed. It's it, it you know, it's the kind of package that we've been waiting to see from Marquez for four years. But it takes four years to get that four years of experience. It takes four years to understand that uh, sometimes the result on Sunday isn't the most important thing. It's the result on the final Sunday of the season that matters. And I think now you got to the point where Marquez knows, he knows how fast he is. He knows how consistent he can be. And now he's also got the confidence to know exactly what he can achieve. And I think he really looks like he's come into his own. And he, like he hasn't won since Cota, but he's opened up this big championship lead just by scoring consistent podium finishes and things like that through the season and it's just been a, a really impressive campaign for him so far probably for my money just as impressive as his start to the 2014 season when he, he reeled off all those wins oh definitely yeah i think he's riding as well if not better than 2014 um i think we all know that although what he did in that year was was sensational there was some element of the, all the stars aligning for him to be able to do that um but this year i think you know he's, he's really he's he is just showing yeah exactly what you said you know that um he's he's thinking a lot more about it and that's a that's quite a terrifying prospect for you know for the other riders in the grid it was interesting lorenzo was asked about the championship and he was saying that you know marcus uh he's managed to he's managed to kind of shave off the rough edges of his uh you know of his riding style on the sunday but that still definitely exists through free practice and qualifying and if you did watch that he was extremely fortunate on on saturday morning to get away from a monumental crash when he was breaking for turn one um you know i kind of thought that marcus settling for second on sunday just went against everything that had kind of gone before uh, the events of the weekend because he had that monumental moment in, in fp3 um if you haven't seen it he basically goes to touch the front brake uh, breaking for turn one and as soon as he touches it he almost loses the front the bike throws him up into the air and he saves this massive high side all the while all when he should be basically going in a straight line then he crashed in fp4 or sorry he crashed in qualifying at the start of qualifying um had to run steal uh, a scooter from track side and, and ride that back to the pit lane and then he went out and qualified fourth i think so you know it was just a, a another day in the life of mark marquez but he managed to you know at least he managed to do that on saturday and then when it did matter on sunday you know he was he was focused he was calm and uh, he knew exactly what he needed to do yeah luckily enough we don't race on saturday anymore but uh, i thought <laughs> sure. uh, you know i've seen i've seen f1 cars with smaller lockups than what we saw from marquez on saturday morning it was <laughs> it was the most incredible thing i think any of us have ever seen and when you're used to seeing mark have so many huge saves like when even something like this leaves you thinking jesus how the fuck did he manage to save that you know it just shows just just what marquez is but i think uh, you know right now I think he's riding better than he ever has just because he's riding with that knowledge that he has to just pick up points. He has to think of the championship. The bike isn't very good. You know, it's not, you know, it's as quick as anything on the grid, but it's not as easy to ride. So you've got to ride within yourself. You've got to, you know, think in terms of what's the best you can get. And, you know, Mark is doing that right now. And it's it's really impressive to see just that change. And as you said, it goes against everything that, you know, we've seen from Mark over his career, just that he's he's able to think in terms of being able to to just uh, ride around, take 20 points, take a podium and just work towards the championship. And I think there was there was two pictures that, that Tony took actually on Sunday. There was one, as you said, with Mark with his, his finger to his head saying it was a thinking man's race. And then there was another where Mark was celebrating just uh, on the way from the podium, just kissing the glass in front of the media centre or something like that. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of encapsulated 
an awful lot about what uh, Marquez is. You know, he, he's a great rider. He still wants to have uh, you know that bit of fun, that uh, character shine through. And I think uh, you know he's he's really set himself up now for another world championship because for for all intents and purposes, and we'll talk about it in in a couple of minutes time when we come back from our our break. But uh, for all intents and purposes, Valentino Rossi's out of the championship now. You know, it's a, it's a huge gap to give to a rider like Marquez. And, you know, even Lorenzo, Sunday showed again just how difficult it is to be able to to win races in MotoGP. And we saw Miller do it. But it just shows, when you look at the stats for how difficult that was for a rider to achieve, you know, you see Lorenzo finishing down in 10th in the, in the West. It shows how easy it is for, you know, a bad weekend to happen for even the top guys. Different things just to fall into line. And it, and it can open up a big points lead like we've seen for, for Marquez now. Yeah, absolutely. It's difficult to, to disagree with what you just said. I think the last time a rider won the championship with three DNFs to his name was 1998. So Rossi certainly has, you know, certainly has a lot to do. Um, but if there ever was a year uh, that a rider would win a championship with three DNFs to his name, I think it would be this year, you know, where, you know, to a certain extent, each track is a step into the unknown. But, you know... I think a difficult task just got more difficult for Rossi. Um, it was already going to be tough after, you know, after his engine blow up in Mugello and, uh, the, you know, this new con- newfound consistency with Mark. Uh, you know, it's too early to rule him out, but uh, but that crash, you could just see his reaction afterwards. Uh, the early crash at, at Aston really, you know, messed up, um, you know, messed up his, his championship charge. And, you know, and I think he knew it as well. You know, he, he knew that that was his fault and it was one of those things. He was riding with the, the harder rear tire in the first part of the race. And because of the the shorter distance, it was twelve laps. The second part, he you know fitted the soft, and this was a this was something that happened. I think to Davizio's and to Crutchlow as well. You know, the soft tire just had that extra bit of grip. They were able to get in the, the throttle that bit earlier, and he came out of the the previous corner. I think it was turn nine, and he was able to get in the get in the throttle earlier. And by the time he arrived at turn ten, he was maybe four or five kilometers faster than the lap before, and yeah, then it all just went a bit pear shaped. So um, you could I don't know if, if you saw um, there was a there was a camera looking up from his dashboard you know, at his at his face during the race. And whenever, you know, he was trying to pick the bike up and he saw that he couldn't get the bike going, he knew it was he knew it was over and you could just see the frustration that he had made that mistake. So uh yeah, so a really big task ahead for Valentino. Yeah, and uh when we come back after the break we'll we'll talk in detail about Rossi's challenge and what he has to do in the course of the, the second half of the season as well. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. Okay, welcome back. And uh, as, as I said, we'll, we'll start talking about Valentino Rossi now. And you mentioned earlier on, Neil, that uh, Rossi is aiming to become the first guy since McDoohan in 98 to win the World Championship, despite having three DNFs. And... Uh, Dune obviously had his his three DNFs in '98, but he also won eight out of fourteen races, and I think Biaggi only won two races that year. And when you look at Biaggi's stats for the season, I think he had one one non-score, and that was obviously whenever he got black flagged in Catalonia. So it's it's one of those seasons where Biaggi was just scoring consistent points rather than uh, winning a lot of races. So maybe there is a parallel between that and what we're seeing from Marquez now this year where, you know, Mark is able to finish on the podium pretty pretty comfortably in every race, 
but uh, not really being able to to win an awful lot of races. But uh, do you think that there is much of a chance that uh, Rossi's going to be able to contend for this championship? Um, I mean, if you look, it's difficult to say because when you look at last year, if you take last year for an example, um, and you look at the, the, the known scores that Mark had in the second half of last season, they were races that he, he kind of knew the championship was beyond them at that stage. So it was just win or nothing, you know, whenever he crashed out of, uh, you know, early on at Aragon or whenever he crashed out trying to follow Rossi in uh, Silverstone. You know, those were crashes where he just thought, you know what, you know, the championship's beyond me and I can just do whatever I want. I can kind of race for the win. This year, you know, in both of those situations, those were second places at the very least for, for Marquez, you know, at Silverstone. If he had to, he could have settled for second in that race. And in Aragon as well, I think he was the only guy that could have lived with um, with, with Lorenzo that weekend. So, you know, I think it's I think it's going to be difficult um, because Marquez has shown that even on a bad day, he can finish third. Um, yeah, but who knows? Uh, you know, as, as we said, you know, each each kind of round is a step into the unknown this year. And, you know, there's a whole lot of things that can happen. So I think it's far too early to rule out Valentino. But, you know, at, at this moment, I would, if I was having to put money down, I would, I, you know, I wouldn't have a second thought about putting it on, on Mark to win the championship. Yeah, because I think for me, I think Rossi's riding better than ever. You know, he's able to, he's, he's faster than ever. He's able to win races. He's able to challenge for the podium. He's, you know, he is riding tremendously. But I just don't think you can make up 42 points of Marquez. And, uh, you know, Rossi has himself to blame for that because he, he crashed out in Cota. He crashed out here. And uh, fair enough, there was an engine failure on one race. But two of those retirements are still on Rossi. And there were two crashes that uh, you didn't really expect to see. You know, and I think um, that's what's, that's what's going to come back to haunt him. Just like last year, we've seen the consistency from Rossi throughout last year. But... Uh, just in that second half of the year, Mark was able to to make a big step forward. And I think, as you said earlier, he's unbeaten in uh, Germany since he started winning races. So it's hard to see past him next week or uh, uh, next time out in Germany. So I think it's going to be a big challenge for anyone to get close to him in the second half of the year. When you go to a lot of tracks that uh, you know Mark is traditionally quite strong on, whether it's uh, Silverstone, Misano, Aragon, you know he's he's won races at all these circuits at the end of the year and I think it's uh, it's going to be a big challenge to be able to to reel him in even for Lorenzo as well who's you know 24 points behind could be a very big margin by the time we leave Germany if Marquez wins that you could easily see Lorenzo fall 34 35 points behind in the championship as well and that's where it gets very difficult because we've seen Pedroza really strong in Germany as well and you know, you're still waiting for Ducati to to really get uh, to get their true potential out as well. So, you know, I think it it gets more and more difficult to make up those points now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that totally. Absolutely. Shall we talk a little bit about Scott Redding? I we can. <laughs> so I thought I thought this weekend was a really interesting one for Scott. You know, it it looked wet or dry that he seemed to make a bit of a step forward, and uh, obviously, you know it. You look at the uh, the headline grabber is going to be that he finished on the podium, but I thought it was interesting just to see that he was comfortable enough with himself not to try and force moves early in the race, just wait until the race came to him and pick up uh, his second uh, MotoGP podium. What did you think of him? And obviously you talked to him throughout the weekend. How was his attitude? How was his, his confidence through the week? Yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, I think I think Aston was was probably Scott's best weekend in MotoGP to date, um, because he showed that in dry conditions through free practice that he was you know in and around the top six more or less. Um, he qualified in the front row, 
you know, qualifying hasn't always been his best uh, his best point uh, since he stepped up to MotoGP. And then, you know, he took a very calm and measured approach in the race to to finish third. Um, so overall, you know, it was uh, it was a stellar weekend. Um, and really, you know, Scott hadn't scored points. Um, I think since sixth place in in Texas, that was the last time he scored points. He had the two disasters really on Spanish soil in Jerez and in Barcelona, um, where the temperatures were so hot and he just wasn't able to find any grip whatsoever. And those races were almost just kind of write-offs. But if you looked at Mugello and you look at Le Mans, um, Scott was, you know, Scott was strong in both of those races. Um, and it was only machine failures that, that forced him out of them. Um, and had it not been for that, you know, we could have been looking at, you know, maybe two other top six results or maybe top eight results. Um, so I think Scott has, you know, I think you look at his speed from the start of the year. Uh, I think he was second at the Qatar test, the final thing, uh, the, the final preseason test before the season started. And we were almost thinking like, God, could Scott even be finishing on the podium? You know, at some at some stages this year, he's definitely going to be in the top six. And then when we saw the first race and we saw what happened in, you know, in Argentina and, and uh, you know, in Austin, it was almost like he had to reassess his expectations um, of what he thought he could do. And then he had the, the disaster in Jerez, like I, like I just mentioned. And that really seemed to kind of set him back. And he just had to, you know, before Le Mans, he said he just had to go away, train by himself for a week and almost get his head sorted out. Um, he, you know, he had designs on taking one of those factory seats in the in the Ducati camp, you know. Um, and I think by the time Le Mans came around, there was just a lot of frustration that he hadn't been able to show his capabilities and that he wasn't even in the, even in the running to take one of those, you know, one of the seats in the factory team. So, not, you know, the fact that that's gone now, and he can, he's, you know, he's almost settled in his mind and he knows that he's going to be racing in, in Pramac next year. I was speaking to the, the Pramac team boss, Francesco Guidotti, after the race on Sunday. And he was saying that basically what we just needed to, to tell Scott was that he doesn't need to prove himself and his talent and his speed every single time he goes out on the bike. He just needs to think about the bigger picture and work towards the race on Sunday. And I think in the last couple of races, okay, Barcelona wasn't maybe the best example of that. But if you looked at Mugello and you looked at, at Le Mans, you know, I think we saw a more mature, more focused Scott Redding. Um, and this is basically just a, a continuation of that. Yeah, because I think uh, when we went to the Hareth test in, uh, what was it, November or December last year, you know, we saw Scott on the Pramac and looking so comfortable, looking so confident. And I think we all expected that he was going to carry that forward. And I got a bit of a surprise whenever I went to the Phillip Island test and I saw how different he looked on the bike. And then when I went to Coda as well, you know, it just looks like it's taken time just really to build that confidence back in himself. And as you said, probably just to understand that he needs to relax on the bike and just not try and be fastest in every session. It's just about trying to build your way forward. And I think that's the one thing where, uh, you know, Pramac are really good for trying to develop that with riders. And I think we've seen we've seen it a few times in the past where, you know, they're able just to take a rider and just get him into that comfort level, that confidence level, and then bring him forward again. And you see it with Petrucci on the other bike as well just where he's riding as well as we've seen just because he knows he's got the backing of the team he knows that the team have him in the right position and uh, he's able just to use that to build his confidence I think uh, you know we could easily see in the second half of the season Scott make another step forward and try and get uh, a bit more consistency in the dry I think that the key thing for him was the last couple of rounds he he stopped trying to just uh, just go as fast as he could every lap in a race you know, you saw early in the season he was going, you know, sliding the bike and putting a lot of strain on the tire. Mm. Whereas when you talk to some of the riders now, they say that, uh, you know, he, he's been coming through a little bit more controlled, a little bit less on, on the limit every lap. And it just means that the tires are able to last a bit longer. Because obviously, you know, we've seen it this season that, uh, you know, Scott's weight, Laura's Baz's weight, just their sheer size 
means that you know they're the two guys that have struggled with the tires and uh, had a couple of major issues and now it's a case of just uh, trying to understand what you need to do with the Michelins. Yep, you look at the you look at the second race. I mean, Scott was um, I think he was fighting for the podium in the first part of the race on Sunday. It was stopped, and then the second race started. And he said that he tried at first to go with with Valentino. I think with Dolphy, a few of the guys that were going away from the start. And he just said that yeah, I can't run that pace. I'm, I literally am losing. He said he was losing the front three or four times a lap trying to you know run that pace. So he took a deep breath, you know, settled it into his own pace. And then he saw what he said when he saw the people crashing out. He was like, okay, maybe this is a good pace after all and then he, he came up to to paul espargaro i sat in his uh you know sat behind him for about one or two lap well quite a quite a bit of the race and he said he basically just um he felt comfortable and he was waiting to you know till he started to feel you know you know he, his feelings started to improve and whenever whenever that happened you know he passed espargaro and you know managed to just gap him straight away um and it was it was quite funny actually speaking to him after the race because he said that you know a racer never forgets um he remembers the history that he had with paul at this at this racetrack you know i think back in 2013 they were fighting for the for the moto 2 win and he said you know he just thought i cannot let this guy win you know after what happened in the past um and i think that you know i give his podium finish a little bit of extra you know it made it that just a little bit sweeter um so yeah so it was a great it was a great ride from scott um also yeah, i think we have to kind of mention that that Daniel Petrucci was another very, very unfortunate guy because he probably could have been in the running for a podium at the very least, perhaps even more. We know how, how good Daniel was in the in the wet. Um, but like Scott, he was, you know, he was uh, he was fast all weekend. He was in and around the top six in the dry and then, you know, was leading that first race really brilliantly. And it was just an electrical problem in the end that forced him out of the second race. So we could have been looking at two Pramit Ducatis, you know, in and around the podium places. I found it really interesting watching that first race because when we got to the stage where it was the three Italians and it was just like Silverstone last year where all three seemed terrified of the prospect of hitting one another and taking each other out. It was Rossi, <laughs> Petrucci and Davi. And I think at one stage, uh, Crutchlow was picking up two seconds a lap or something like that. And, uh, you know, it, it looked to me like all three guys were happy to be in that fight but none of them wanted to endanger anyone else. And it just meant that, uh, you know, if we didn't have the red flag, that you could possibly have seen uh, Crutchlow really just uh, reel in that gap and uh, put himself into into a position to to be the race winner. But uh, it was just, uh, it, it's, uh, it's always a bit intriguing when you see any of the Italians out on track together. And I think, uh, you know, it's worth mentioning as well, another Italian, Andre Iannone, he managed to... to get through this race he finished fifth and uh you know it was another one of those performances from Ianone where you can see just how talented he is and how fast he is but uh, it is a case of just unlocking that potential and keeping that consistency yeah it's true i mean you look at Ianone's weekend and you think you know fifth place he came from the back of the grid yeah it's a fair job but you look at his speed throughout the weekend and you look at Dolphy's speed in the wet and you kind of think that that just has to be another missed opportunity for Ducati. Um, I think Ducati riders finished, you know, top five of the sessions throughout the weekend. Um, I think Davizioso and Iannone were fastest, were one and two in two of those sessions. Um, you know, Ducati riders hadn't finished first and second in the session since Qatar last year. So we could see that the bikes were working really well around Aston this weekend, uh, really, really well. And it's almost like with Iannone at Qatar and at Mugello, you think, okay, you know, when Mugello, he scored a podium, but he probably should have won that race. And I can't help but think the same uh, coming away from Essen that a Ducati rider probably should have been, you know, fighting for the win in that race there. Yeah, and I, I wrote a bit about it as well. And I wrote it nearly as uh, the Ducati curse at the moment because 
they just can't keep getting out of their can't keep getting in their own way. Like they they consistently find a way to lose races now rather than being able to win one. And when you look at uh, when you look at the pace of Davi in the wet or Davi even in the dry and Ian only in the dry all weekend, like the Ducati was probably the bike to be on again this weekend. We saw Hernandez lead. We saw Petrucci contend for the lead. You know, you look at uh, the final results and you've got uh, Ian only a fifth, Barbara a sixth. Eugene Laverty seven. The Ducati was a good bike here this weekend, and again they come away with a you know Scott's podium being the the highlight. When really it should have been, we should be looking at it again, saying that oh Ducati has finally won again. Whereas now we move on to Germany again. As we said earlier, it's unlikely that they're going to beat uh, Marquez there. So you're looking into the second half of the season where last year Ducati really struggled. They couldn't develop the bike to the same degree as everyone else, and they got engulfed. And they missed out on their chances to win races. And uh, you'd have to say that uh, if they if they had Lorenzo on the bike, would they have won a race yet this year? Yes, they probably would have. Ian O'Neill and Davi, good riders, but they just don't look like they're able to make that step and turn Ducati into a race winner again. And it's a shame because I think um, last year, I, I expected on the basis of last year that Ian O'Neill would have made that step this year. But uh, whether it's the Michelin tyres, whether it's the electronics, whatever it is, He's just been at the center of, of a, an awful lot of incidents this year. And, uh, you know, he needs to make that step. He needs to find that consistency from last year. But he needs to win a race as well. So he's putting himself under the pressure to to be that guy that uh, claims the win and shows Ducati that they made a mistake by getting rid of him as well. And, you know, it just looks like the team are pressing, the riders are pressing, and they're just not able to to get to what they, they need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's and as you say, it's the longer this run goes on, the more difficult it will be to end. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 a shame. I think Ian only was riding really well throughout the weekend, and it was almost as if the pressure was off him, and he could just go out, do his own thing without having to think too much. You know, he just thought, well, in the end, this isn't... Um, you know, this isn't going <clears> to <throat> matter so much in terms of qualifying position. He could just go out and ride it in his own way without having to think too, too much about things. And sometimes you feel that when he has to think about things too much, that can be his undoing. Yeah, the, the prospect of Ian only not thinking too much is one that probably terrifies most of the Grand Prix grid. But uh, <laughs> when we come back after the break as well, we'll look at uh, Moto2, Moto3, and we'll just wrap up the Assen weekend. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just one more time. Want to give a quick shout out to our followers on Twitter. We just cracked the uh, 1000 follower mark and are pretty stoked about that. So thank you for following the show on Twitter and back to the show now. And uh, welcome back again, everyone. And uh, as I said earlier, we'll just uh, talk now about Moto2 and Moto3. And obviously in uh, Moto2, Neil, we saw... Another Moto2 rider confirmed for his place on the MotoGP grid, and it was Alex Rins, who's been confirmed at Suzuki. And uh, it was a a, a disappointing uh, race for Rins again at the weekend. He ended up finishing sixth. He was off the pace, but uh, no surprise to see him signed up at uh, at Suzuki. Yep, no surprise. Um, it's something that really we'd we'd we kind of heard uh, at Mugello that this was going to be the likely the likely Suzuki lineup. You know, he had signed by then, and it seemed that Suzuki wanted to continue. Um, you know what they had with with Vinales and Alicia Spargo, and that's one experienced rider um, that can be 
kind of relied upon to, to develop the bike, you know, for the most part. And then one young, blindingly fast rider. Um, and I think, you know, from what I heard, it was, um, you know, Davide Brivio really pushed to have Rins in the team, whereas the Suzuki management, you know, they wanted to have at least one rider from this year uh, carried into 2017 to kind of keep that continuity there. Um, but obviously, Rins has been confirmed. Um, and I think, you know, it's a good signing. I think, um, you know, Rins has had maybe a few ups and downs in, in the Moto2 class in the last the last couple of races. Um, but I still think, you know, in terms of his age, he's probably the most exciting rider in that class at the moment. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's a good signing, I think. I had a, I had a good chat with, with one long-time Grand Prix rider about uh, Rins whenever, you know, it became pretty clear he was going to move up to MotoGP and things like that. And he was looking for his factory seat. And uh, this rider said to me that... Uh, he 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 understands some of the hype about Rins, but not all of the hype. He thinks that you know this is a guy that's you know he's won Grand Prix, but he hasn't won a championship. He's looking for a, a factory seat, but he probably in this guy's eyes he doesn't deserve it. He looks at at a rider that uh, has been talked about consistently about being oh that guy that if Yamaha sign him he's their future to replace the Rins or or whatever, and uh, it, he just hasn't had the results to actually back it up. Rins is a rider that has promised so much but not delivered on that potential over the course of his Grand Prix career so far despite consistently being very good in Moto3 very good in Moto2 yeah I think um, I guess to an extent you could say that you know you could also argue that you know circumstances went against him in that Moto3 in that final year Moto3 where he was teamed up with Alex Marquez in the you know in the Alsamora backed the, the Alsamora you know kind of managed team uh, the Monlau team um you know, the, the potential that he showed last year, I think, really showed, you know, what a great talent he is. And he's still leading the Moto2 Championship. He just hasn't really been making it his own. But, you know, at the same time, he's got two guys in Zarco and Lowe's that are, you know, ferocious competitors. And, you know, it never was going to be an easy year fighting against those guys. And especially now, you know, Zarco's really really looking like he's uh you know like he's in the mood to kind of defend that championship, you know, after having a few wobbles in, in Hareth and Le Mans. So I would agree to what this rider, this unnamed rider said to an extent, but I still think, you know, considering the options available to Suzuki, um, considering the options available in Moto2 and in the junior classes, I still think Rins is probably the best, the best, you know, the best talent there. Yeah, I think for, for my money, Zarco, Zarco and Sam Lowe's are probably, you know, they're, they're the two guys in Moto2 that probably stand out with their experience on a 600. If I'm a MotoGP team boss, I'm probably thinking in terms of, well, Rince is quite a bit younger than both of those guys. We can mould him and he's got that potential. He's got that talent. And I think Rince can potentially be one of those guys to make that step up. And uh, like Suzuki, I think have got a great deal for next year. They've probably got Ian One at a, at a cut price deal compared to what they would have gotten them 12 months ago. And you bring in Rince as a young rider that can just develop over the next couple of years and i think that it's a it's a really good rider lineup for for suzuki like i'm a big fan of ianone i think uh you know last year we saw just how good a rider ianone can be he was consistently you know top four top five we saw him at places like levon and magello whenever he had his his shoulder injuries he was still able to finish on the podium you know he was he was a rider that last year really looked like he had made that step to be up there with the aliens whereas i think this year obviously he's made a big step back and it's probably the it's the most disappointing we've seen from ianone throughout his career really if you look at his his three years in moto 2 
I think he was third in the championship each year. He was a, a real consistent force, able to win a lot of races. He came up with Pramac and was able to develop year on year and become stronger. Last year then with the factory Ducati team, he was he was awesome. But this year it's just, uh, it's been a terrible year for him so far. But he's still got that potential to be a top rider. And that's why I think Suzuki's made a really good signing there. And I think it's interesting just to see how that will work between rins and the anona i think uh, when i look at rins in moto 2 i see you know it's easy to make the comparisons to maverick vinales because he replaced vinales at the pons team but when vinales came in and when rins came in we're probably on a par with each other i think uh, in terms of their talent on a moto 2 bike really from the outset both of them were just as fast as each other was but vinales made a big step halfway through his rookie year and we're still waiting for Rins to make that step. But I think if Rins can go on to the Suzuki, I think he can show again just what, what he can do. He's got a good barometer as his teammate as well in the shape of Ian One. And I think it, it'll be interesting to see how he does. Obviously, as we said earlier, Zarco, Lowe's and uh, Folger are all likely to be in MotoGP as well. So a lot of Moto2 riders stepping up. And uh, indeed, actually, just uh, talking about Lowe's, he'll obviously be partnered with Alessia Spagaro. And uh, that was confirmed at the weekend as well. And that's something that uh, I think it took a lot of people by surprise, Neil. I think whenever yourself and uh, Peter McLaren at Crash were uh, writing about uh, Aleish to uh, to Aprilia. But it, it's a deal that made a lot of sense. And it's uh, it's good to see Espagaro still stay on a factory bike because he's been quite impressive this year. He has, yeah, he has. He's been, um, okay, I guess... You know, I guess to a certain extent, you know, he's been like like Alex Sparger always has been. You know, he's been very, very, very good at some places, and you know, slightly anonymous at others. Um, he has been able, on occasion, to match Vinales, and you know, sometimes beat him like a wrath. Um, and then at other times, he's been he's been kind of outclassed by him. Um, but I think he has still, you know, he's still a very fast, talented rider. Um, and I think you know, it's a, it's a good sign. And I, you know, I would say that he is a step up on on either Brattle or or Bautista um for for that team and again it's 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 kind of doing what you know what suzuki have done it, it's taken a, a proven moto gp rider a guy that could potentially be you know a guy that can be in the top six maybe even um maybe even higher than the top six on, on his day and team him with uh you know a class rookie a really fast exciting rookie that's coming into the class and you know that sort of dynamic does seem to you know work quite well for um for you know a team that is looking to make that step into the sort of you know the, the bikes that are regularly challenging for the top six. Yeah, and I think uh, Aprilia definitely seems that they are putting in the effort now this year again and really have made a, a big step forward. I think it'll be interesting to see, I think, just how things work between uh, Espagaro and Lowe's as well because it does give Lowe's a good known commodity that he's able to compare himself against. He's able to also look at it in terms of, well, this is what Vinales did as a rookie against Aleish. And it gives him a, a good barometer to judge things against. It gives Aprilia a good barometer to judge things against because people like uh, Bautista and Bradle, even at this stage of their career, I don't think anyone really knows where exactly they fit in because Bradle was for a long time racing on his own and um, Bautista was teamed up with uh, you know the likes of Loris Caparossi at the end of his career or you know, on his own at Gersini and, you know, it, it's it's difficult to judge exactly where they fit on the Grand Prix grid, but I think it's fair to say that uh, Espagaro is a step above what they can get from those guys because the, the flashes from Aleish are always really impressive, whether it's his one lap pace 
or you know whenever he is able to hook up a race he's always been you know very impressive so i think it'll be interesting to see how that goes but uh, i think uh, when you talk about impressive takanakagami at the weekend neil really impressive stuff to be able to take the pressure and take the win for his first uh, first grand prix win i think it's it's one that uh, you know, people have been waiting a long time for Nakagami to finally make the step and uh, become the next Japanese Grand Prix winner. But uh, I think it's, you know, it must be the middle of 2013 or something was when he had that run of consecutive podiums. And uh, he just, he hasn't really lived up to the hype since then. But it's great to see him finally pick up a win. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, and, and it, you know, I have to say it was it was a result that I really didn't see coming. Um, because Nakagami, as you say, in 2013, you know, his form in the middle of that year suggested that he was going to go on and, you know, potentially be the next big thing. Um, and he never really built on that. He had a terrible 2014. Um, and 2015 was, you know, hit or miss. He had that podium in Mizano, but, you know, really didn't show anything that suggested he was going to just be anything other than an occasional podium finisher Moto2 but you know a podium in Catalonia you know speaking to Sam Lowe's after the race in Barcelona and he was saying that when Nakabami came past him he just you know Sam had just no answer for him he was like wow that guy's gonna there's no way I can live with that pace and he came here and you know he he was he was fantastic. Yeah, he was really brilliant. And what really impressed me was that Zarco got into second after fighting like crazy in the opening laps. And by that stage, Nakagami, I think, had uh, you know built a two or two and a half second lead. And even with spots of rain starting to fall, you know Nakagami still managed to keep his head. And it was only right at the end when the race was eventually red flagged and the rain was intensifying that you know Zarco was taking big chunks out of his lead. But by that stage, you feel that Nakagami thought the rain is falling at such a such a level that it's going to be stopped soon anyway. Um, so I thought it was a fantastic ride. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and when you consider how brilliantly Zarco rode at Aston last year, you know, and he really seemed to be building into that sort of, he building up that head of steam again when he got into second place. And uh, Nakagami, you know, had an answer for him. He was able to maintain his pace and uh, I was able to do that. So I was I was very impressed. I'd say you were also very impressed by uh, Frankie Morbidelli as well. He's <laughs> a writer that uh, myself, yourself and David have always... Uh, been a big fan of and I think uh, you know it's nice to see Franco on the podium I think uh, a bit of luck played into his hand the bit of rain at the end seemed to uh, really uh, cause a a big moment with Baldessari and Sam Lowe's as well and that's what uh, gave a little bit of an edge to Morbidelli just to be able to hold off uh, Lowe's and Baldessari but uh, you know great to see him up on the podium and again just showing that uh, he's the the stronger rider at the VDS team now as well like Alex Marquez, he finished in the top 10, but he finished again, you know, 10 seconds off the back of his teammate, just not uh, not able to to get close to, to Morbidelli. Sure, sure, exactly, yeah. Um, Morbidelli, I think you could say, um, you know, from the performances in Argentina and Qatar at the start of the year, you know, he's a rider that should be fighting for podiums week in and week out, you know, I've no doubt about that. Uh, but things have just been, things have just been quite tough for him. Um, and you know it's just a remarkable day for, for Mark VDS because they've had such a tough season you know MotoGP both the riders have been riding injured at certain points of the year the bike hasn't been competitive and you could just see that Alex Marquez's confidence is just completely shot um, no confidence in the front end of that bike at all and really they, they are relying upon uh, Franco Morbidelli to you know to, to carry their Moto2 results to a certain extent um, and I think you know he is a rider that um you know, is capable of, of, of stepping up and, and, and challenging the front three of Lowe's and, and Rins and Zarco, um, you know, and, and occasionally beating them. Yeah, uh, I definitely think so as well. I think that, uh, you know, Morbidelli is a guy that for next year will have to be marked out as a, as a major title contender. 
But uh, speaking of, of major title contenders, you'd have to look at uh, Moto3 and uh, obviously what we've seen from Brad Binder has been uh, really impressive. But uh, this was this was a day where, where Binder got caught out and he ended up finishing 12th. Yeah. And uh, it leaves him with, uh, you know, a disappointing a disappointing result for Binder, but uh, when you look at that Moto three championship, he still left himself in a in a very commanding position. He still got uh, you know a forty eight point lead, I think it is, in the championship. But uh, great to see the likes of Bagnaya, the likes of uh, you know Mino getting up to the front. Even Jules Danilo, I think, was was fifth Six, or sixth in six, the race. Yeah. So you know, it it just shows just how good uh, Moto three can be, and uh, we saw. You know, a really, a really hard-fought race, and uh, even you know, as I said, with Binder having his his moment and falling down the field, it still left us with uh, you know a big scrap for the for the win and uh, a new winner as well. Sure, yeah, exactly. I was so close to being able to use that headline that I've had saved for for weeks and months. Binder binned it, uh, but sadly, well, no, not sadly at all. You know, to his credit, he managed to managed to stay on. Um, you know, he had that huge moment through Ramshook, which is just a terrifying place to run off the track. And, you know, he managed to keep the bike upright and, you know, to his credit, came home and got a couple of points. I think a couple of things, you know, in, in some ways you can sort of, you could just ignore that result for Binder because Jorge Navarro obviously wasn't riding in Iceland. He had broken his leg in a training accident before. Um, so, you know, the second place in the championship wasn't there. Also, you have Fanati, who is third in the championship, who once again showed that just, you know, he's, he's fast and he's able to run at the front. And you look at the last lap and he's done everything right. He's, he's basically led the, a lot of the race. He sat and had a chance to study what the leaders are doing. And he comes into the last lap and he still manages to, you know, find a way to finish off the podium um, and he was beaten to the, on a run to the line or in fact he was outbraked into the last corner by the Gian Antonio you know a, a class rookie a kid of you know 17 years old and you know you just think that uh, Fanati still isn't ready to, to win a championship when you look at how cool how brilliant Binder has been able to handle the pressure in a last lap shootout and you saw to a certain extent Navarro doing the same in Barcelona you know Fanati's just not at that level so so to an extent Binder was let off but I would just like to say, you know, that Pekka Benaya this year has really, you know, proved me, and I think maybe yourself as well, Steve, proved us wrong because we kind of had him down as a guy that was just a, a bit of a crasher, a bit of a crash waiting to happen at the end of 2015. But time and time again this year, he's shown us that he's doing things with that Mahindra that really, you know, the bike shouldn't, you know, the bike is far below that level that he's riding at. And I thought he rode a really brilliant race. And, you know, I think he's one of the most impressive riders in Moto, in Moto3 this year, definitely. I think you made a lot of really good points there, Neil, but Binder bins it. That's <laughs> the headline you've been waiting to write. That's all I could hear there. That's that's bullshit, Neil. It's kind of like all these Brexit headlines. It's just uh, it's just taking the easy route out. Um, I think uh, you're, you're dead right, though, about Fanati. I think when you look at Fanati's career, how many podiums do you think Fanati has had in the course of a five-year Grand Prix career where he's been a consistent front runner? Yeah, I would. You know, I wouldn't say it's much more than 12, 14. 15 podiums. Fifteen, right? Yeah. And this is this is a man that I think everyone knows how good Fanati can be. Everyone sees the potential in him, but he's a man that has been on the best Moto three bikes on the grid for most of his career, and he's had. 15 podiums and it's just it's not enough like if you look at if you look at his career he's had uh invariably if he finishes on the podium he wins races i think he's won seven or eight grand prix but it's not uh, it's not good enough because he consistently finds a way just like ducati are in moto gp he consistently finds a way not to win races when he gets himself into the right position i'd say he's probably had 
an awful lot of fourth place finishes and things like that as well, where he just gets himself into the right position to to challenge, but uh, can't quite finish things off. And I think even just uh, this year, he's he's had three or four fourth place finishes. And you compare and contrast that with Binder, who's, you know, once he's, he's won a, a race, he's been able to consistently win races, put himself into the right positions. And I think that's what the difference is. Maybe Fanati won too easily too early in his career you know he was second in his first race to Vinales he won his second race maybe it all came a little bit too easily for him and uh, now it's just proven too much of a challenge to really dig things out and, and fight in, in a group of 10 for the for the race win but uh, I think Pekka Bagnaya definitely Neil everyone knew how fast he was but he was a man that was just prone to throwing it down the road when the pressure got on you were pretty confident you were going to see number 21 in the gravel trap whereas uh you know at the weekend i think it was just hugely impressive stuff from him he dealt with the pressure really well he put himself into the right position and you know this year i think he's he's really shown it i think in in qatar if uh, if you listen back to the the show from qatar i think we both talked about how you know bagnaya was on the podium with antonelli i think it was and you know the two of us were, were just uh, i think we had a, a whatsapp group at the time with a few of us and it was just like what lap is bagnaya and antonelli gonna gonna benefit you know and bagnaya managed it. i think this is the the fourth podium he's had this year and uh, you know he's just consistently been able to grind out solid performances whenever the bike's been able to work well like the mahindra it isn't a, it isn't a great bike but it's a good enough bike to be able to put yourself into decent positions with it. And Bagnaya has managed to get himself into fourth in the championship. He's only a handful of points behind Fanati as well. So, you know, he's done really well this year. I think when you look at uh, when you look at the Moto3 championship, he's been one of those standout guys that's really outperformed expectations from him. Binder's probably matched what everyone, well, maybe not matched, but uh, he's doing what everyone expects an IO championship rider to do. Navarro's made the kind of step that uh, you know both of us are big Navarro fans. We've talked about how 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 much we rate him. So he's he's done roughly what we would have expected. But someone like Bagnaya, he's really stepped up to the mark and uh, been been very impressive. I think when you look at the the last lap at the weekend, he was really able to to hold his own and put himself into the right position to be able to 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 take that win. Whereas Finati Antonelli. You know, they, they just seem to get outfoxed out a little bit. They got boxed into the wrong places and uh, that's why they ended up finishing fourth and fifth. Yeah, yeah, no, I would I would, uh, I would, agree with that completely. Um, I think all you have to do is look at the other riders on the Mahindra, on Mahindras this year. Um, you know, I, I rate Jorge Martin quite a lot, uh, that's Banyai's teammate. I think he did enough in his debut campaign last year to show that, you know, he's a he's a real talent and a, and a promising racer, but he just hasn't been able to get close this year. Obviously, he was, he was, uh, he was injured at Aston. His crash in, in Barcelona meant that he couldn't race in, in Holland. Um, and then you look at uh, Albert Arenas, who I think is riding for that team in the, the FIM Junior World Championship. Arenas was racing and, you know, by the end of last year, beating, you know, the guys that have all stepped into the Moto3 class this year. So you have guys like Bulliga, Canet, Aaron Canet, um, you know, that kind of crop, uh, Juan Mir as well, who finished really well in, in Aston, you know, that, that kind of crop that's come in and lit up the championship to a certain extent this year you know Aaron Arenas was uh, last year you know kind of beating them and, and running with them for the most part so he hasn't really been able to get close any any time that he's been running the world championship either so you know I think that just kind of strengthens um you know strengthens or underlines the stuff that the uh, Pekka Banya has been been doing this year and if you look at the race I mean I think uh, John McPhee okay he's on a Peugeot but that's basically a rebadge Mahindra and you know he was 16th at the end of that race and that was the next highest 
the next highest Mahindra, you know. So you've got Banyaya in first and then McPhee in 16th. So, you know, it kind of shows just a, what a great job Peko did. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth noting as well that, you know, John McPhee is a is a, a podium man. He's a pole position man as well, you know. Th- he, he's a guy that, uh, he he's no slouch, but he's showing what that Mahindra probably is capable of doing right now, whereas Bagnaya has been a step above and, and really impressive. You know, maybe there is a few different bits and pieces because it's the Aspar team compared to the Peugeot team but uh, really you'd have to say that Bagnaya has made that step and, and he looks like he's the one that's being impressive on that bike as opposed to you know some of the other guys that you see on the Mahindra but uh, I think uh, great to see you know three new winners as well you know Bagnaya's first Grand Prix win Nakagami his first Grand Prix win and Jack Miller his first MotoGP win it's a, it's a great thing to see you know just a, a turn up for the books and Aston delivering shocks again like we've seen in the past exactly yeah the first time since Texas 2013 I think since we've had three uh, new winners in each class you know three new class winners um, so you know so it's always yeah it's always great to, to see that and, you know kind of get the let the form let the form book get thrown out the window yeah and i think it's it's the first time since valencia 06 that we saw two new grand prix winners as well at the same weekend that would have been bayless and uh d'angelis i think in the uh the 250 and moto gp classes but uh really a, a a great weekend of racing and it showed again neil just uh how, how special a season we're having right now i think every every race seems to give us a new talking point and something uh something new to focus on but uh bit of a break now before Germany and then the summer break but I think uh, when we look at uh, what to expect in Germany again like you said earlier on Mark Marquez will start as the the real favourite and it should set him up to go into the summer break with a, a very commanding championship lead yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah and it sets it up nicely for for the section which which is always a Always a great race in the year, great atmosphere, and first time I'm first time I'll be there actually, so I'm quite excited about going. Saxon Ring's a good race to go to. It's it's a it's a fun track. You can you can get everywhere really quickly. It's one of those races that I always tell a lot of fans to go to. It's uh you know there's there's nice uh, towns around. You're able to good restaurants, good beer, you know, and uh, good atmosphere at the racetrack. So it's it ticks all the boxes between that and Brno. It's hard to beat those two rounds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Should be good. Yes, and you're off to you're off to Laguna Seca now, Steve. Off to Laguna. Actually, by the time this show comes out, I'll be in I'll be in California. So uh, really looking forward to that. It's the first time I've been to Laguna since 2013, and uh, you know it's always a, a special race track to go to. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And how do you see that pan out? I mean, Jazz was was fairly unbeatable last year. Um, do you see it kind of pan out in the same way this year? I was uh, I was going through the the videos of the, the last couple of years just to you know do my my bit of research before the before heading out and uh yeah it's it's hard to look past the ducatis there we've seen you know davis really strong there last year and uh you know he's going to be very motivated after what happened at uh at uh, mizano as well so definitely a case where i think we'll see davis come out firing and uh trying to just prove himself again i think the the championship's gone now you know and uh he now is just going to be on the He'll be on a mission just to win as many races as he can. And I think that's where uh, Davis is really very dangerous. And I think that uh, JR is going to have his, his work cut out for him to be able to hold off uh, to hold off Ray, uh, to hold off Davis. And I think, uh, you know, Tom Sykes will be will be keen to go out and prove a point again this weekend. And uh, really, it does set up quite nicely. I think even the Yamahas could be quite strong there as well. Yeah. At uh, Donington, I think that uh, the Or one, one was really strong. Lowe's had a, a solid weekend at uh, Mizano as well. So I think uh, really, it wouldn't be a surprise to see 
Yamaha really um, get onto it, maybe even fight for the podium in Laguna, which is great. That's what we need yeah. to see. We want to see that bike uh, start to show what it can do because it's uh, it's definitely a bike that a lot of riders are very interested in uh, seeing what its potential is. And uh, a lot of guys are interested in getting onto that bike for next year. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, is Sylvain Gintoli going to be back for, for Laguna? Uh, at the moment, nothing's been confirmed about that, but... Uh, from everything that I've been told, it'd be highly unlikely that we'll see Gantoli back on the bike for Laguna. Canapa has been lined up for it, and uh, I'd be surprised if he's not on the bike. Okay, okay, that should be interesting. Excellent, yeah. And what about Nicky? I mean, uh, a lot's been made about Nicky's return to, to Laguna, and rightly so. He's a fantastic record there in MotoGP. But I was I was listening to some of the things he was saying in Mizano, and he was saying in terms of track layout and everything, you know, he's not. He doesn't think Laguna will be that suited to the CBR. Yeah, I think uh, I think Nicky's right with that. I think at the end of the day, the the Fireblade is probably the on any given day it could be the third best bike on the grid, and uh, on most days it's probably the the fourth best bike on the grid. And I think uh, for for Nicky, you know, Laguna is obviously a track where uh, you know we've seen Nicky win in MotoGP, we've seen him challenge at the front in MotoGP, but. Uh, I think it, it's going to take definitely the the home the home track uh, full gas mentality to actually give him a chance to to pick up another win. But uh, you know, we we all learned that long long time ago not to rule out Nicky Hayden on any race day, but specifically a race day in the US. And uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see him finish up on the podium. But uh, I think uh, to win a race is probably just maybe a little bit too much of an ask. Sure, sure, absolutely. Nice one. Okay, so that uh, that takes us to the end of the show, Neil. I think uh, we, we covered a lot of ground there about Assen, and uh, as we said, you know, a really historic race. Great to see new winners, and uh, when when we uh, come back after uh, after Laguna and and uh, get ourselves geared up for Saxon Ring, I think it's going to be interesting just to get ready for the the MotoGP summer break with uh, what could potentially be you know, a really interesting uh, championship fight in uh, in MotoGP as well. So thanks for joining us, Neil. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Paddock Pass podcast. The smooth tones of Neil Morrison. Nice. Beautiful. That is just absolutely beautiful.